The following episode of Lyrics of Their Life podcast deals with serious issues such as drug references, sexual references and violence that may be distressing to some listeners. It is not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we'll be exploring the life and music of Jeff Buckley. Known best for his hit album Grace, his haunting vocals, strong songwriting and instrumental ability and sadly for his tragic death that shocked the world, only a few years into his promising career. As we take a look at Jeff's upbringing, estranged from his pro-musician father Tim Buckley, and the road that led Jeff to sign his very first record deal. We take a look at the meaning behind the songs So Real, Grace, Last Goodbye, and Eternal Life, and we examine what actually occurred on that fateful day that Jeff drowned in the Mississippi, at the age of just 30. This is the story of Jeff Buckley. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Prince has died at the age of 57. This is it. Sorry, Gary, but I was always the talented member of the band. Keep going, little girl. I will hit a man with glasses. I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Former Beatle John Lennon, who was 40, was shot and killed last night outside his luxury apartment in New York. As beans shouldn't present fucking awards to gonna be. Jeff Buckley was born Jeffrey Scott Buckley on the 17th of November 1966 in Anaheim, California in the USA. Jeff would be raised by his mother, Mary Goubert, after his father Tim Buckley chose to leave the pair behind when Mary was still pregnant with Jeff. Jeff's father Tim Buckley was born on the 14th of February 1947 in Washington DC and was also raised in Southern California in the 50s. Tim was very musically minded after being influenced by his own family to listen to musicians such as Billie Holiday, Miles Davis, Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland. When the early 60s rolled around, Tim taught himself to play the banjo at just the age of 13 after the folk musical revolution occurred, which eventually led Tim to start his very own band with his school friends called the Kingston Trio, and later as the Bohemians with his future songwriting partner Larry Beckett 
and bass player Jim Fielder. Despite being quite good at sports like baseball and gridiron, Tim would eventually chuck these in for following his musical ambitions, often skipping class to go play music instead, especially the guitar, which became almost a bodily extension of Tim, while Tim's singing voice was said to have been exceptional. One day at school in French class in 1964, when Tim was just 17, he met Mary Goubert, who was 18 at the time. The two of them quickly hit it off and started dating, which for Tim was great as it provided him with a form of escape from his troublesome home life after his father, who was a World War II veteran, suffered with a number of physical and mental health issues, such as a head injury suffered in the war, and a work-related injury which made his father quite unpleasant to be around. In the beginning of Tim and Mary's relationship, Tim wrote a number of songs about their relationship while he was a member of the Bohemians, which helped woo Mary, with the pair deciding to get married very young on the 25th of October 1965, with Tim being only 18 and Mary being 19. However, some believe that Tim felt pressured into getting married and that perhaps he wasn't ready to settle down. Their relationship would quickly turn sour, however, as Mary fell pregnant and the pressure to become a family man simply became overwhelming and too much for Tim as time went on. Tim was expected to be the main breadwinner of their new family with the impending birth of their first child and took up a job as a taxi driver and a chauffeur, forcing him to drop his passion for music altogether. But for Tim, he hated this job, and not being able to gig and play his music for an audience was simply not an option. During 1965, Tim would attend college for just two weeks before deciding it wasn't for him and dropping out. Tim instead focused solely on music during this time and began performing on the LA folk club scene at coffee houses and bars. Although, as the year progressed, Tim was very unhappy and claimed he was forced into getting married, ultimately deciding to leave both Mary and his unborn baby, as he looked to cement his name as a professional folk musician. Mary and Tim's divorce would be finalised later in October 1966, a month out from their son Jeff's birth. As Tim continued gigging around LA, he even repartnered with a woman named Jane Goldstein after meeting her at the Troubadour, with the pair deciding to relocate to New York together. Earlier in the year, 1966, Tim earned a recording contract with Elektra Records after sending a demo tape away to them, and in August that year, he recorded his debut self-titled album in LA. Tim's career had only just started to take off, as Mary was just about ready to welcome Jeff Buckley into the world, without Tim by her side. Just months out from Jeff's birth, Mary and Tim arranged a meeting at a coffee shop in Orange County, near Tim's family home. Tim, however, wasn't in a mood to change his mind, and declared that he wanted no part in raising their baby, and that the decision on what to do with him was all in Mary's hands. 
Mary, of course, chose to go through with the birth and not to give him up for adoption and would raise Jeff on her own. Mary, as a single mother, would travel and live together with Jeff in a range of towns around the Orange County or in the LA district, with Jeff remembering that they always seemed to be on the move and that he described themselves as, quote, working class white boy, desert town sort of no culture, no class, no nothing, rootless trailer trash, although his mother sees that as a slight exaggeration as they didn't actually live in trailers, according to her. Mary worked hard to support her son and was often changing jobs for better pay in different towns or sometimes the work would simply run out, forcing her to look around in other towns or suburbs. Money was scarce, however, as there was a job shortage at the time. When Jeff was just a youngster, Mary met a man by the name of Ron Moorhead, who would eventually become Jeff's stepfather. This led to Ron being the only real father figure in Jeff's life, with his own father, Tim, not even meeting him once so far. Ron had really taken Jeff under his wing, so Mary decided that Jeff would now instead go by his stepfather's last name of Moorhead. And due to Scott being Jeff's middle name, Jeff became known as Scotty Moorhead. Then, when Jeff was around four or five years old, he would welcome his half-brother, Corey Moorhead, into the family, as the now family of four briefly settled in Southern California before moving on again. Despite his real father being a musician, Jeff would be influenced by his mother musically, as Mary was a classically trained pianist and would often play the piano for Jeff and Corey. Together they would sit for hours, listening intensely to their mother playing, and they just loved being around her. When she would go to get up, they would beg her to stay and play them some more songs, with Mary quoted as saying, No mummy, stay, play another one, play the one that sounds like raindrops or the waltz. Jeff would grow up playing on toy guitars and drums and always seemed to be finding something musical to do with his spare time. At the age of five, Jeff even found an acoustic guitar hidden away at his grandmother's as she had hoped one day to give it to her own kids but they just never had the interest or wanted it. Jeff was the lucky one who would receive the guitar and he cherished it. However, at first... Jeff wouldn't necessarily play it and would instead use it to roll his marbles on top of or in the guitar cavity or sound hole. Jeff found this to be a fun game but over time he started plucking away and strumming the strings. At age six, Jeff remembers hearing his mother play him a song by his father Tim called Once I Was which Jeff believes is the very first song he remembers hearing. He says despite not being close or even knowing his father, that he was still influential on his musical passion. Jeff's family, including his mother, enjoyed singing and they would often harmonise together around the house. Growing up, Jeff listened to all sorts of music, such as Led Zeppelin, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Steels and Nash, Bob Dylan, John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters... Susie and the Banshees, The Smiths, 
French musician Edith Piaf, to heavy metal, opera, and even jazz, where he drew inspiration from Duke Ellington and Miles Davis. Jeff listened to everything he could, drawing influence from all of these varying genres. He later revealed that as a kid, he lived and breathed music, and quote, Music was my plaything, it was my toy. While in regards to his musical influences, Jeff was quoted as saying, Basically all that music comes from moving people in a live setting. Live meaning not on TV. Live meaning not on the radio. Live meaning you were there. Some people, they're in a performance space and they're moving the hell out of you. Jeff remembers as a kid, he would be riding along in his stepdad Ron Moorhead's VW van as he would lie down on the back of the van platform in between two large and very loud speakers listening to Led Zeppelin on full blast. His stepdad influenced his love of Led Zeppelin and rock music greatly by also playing Jeff the music of Queen, Pink Floyd, The Who, Kiss and Jimi Hendrix. Jeff even wore out a Led Zeppelin cassette tape that he had received from his stepdad of the album Physical Graffiti after listening to it non-stop. Jeff would even put Led Zeppelin on the record player and would speed it up to 33 RPM and listen to Robert Plant's voice with a funny high pitch. Jeff was quite a character, especially around those close to him, and would even impersonate Elvis and quote him. On one occasion, when Jeff was much older, he was questioned on what or who his main musical influences were, and he wittily replied, quote, Love, anger, depression, joy, and dreams, and Zeppelin totally. Jeff wasn't really a sporty kid, unlike his biological father Tim, and he wasn't really interested in having girlfriends at school. Instead, music was his main focus. Jeff enjoyed his own company and just listening to loads of music, and by the age of eight, he says he remembers thinking being a musician is exactly what he wanted in life. Jeff was described as a bit of a loner, and sometimes an awkward and shy kid who didn't really fit in at school. He was said to have found it very hard growing up and fitting in, and as he wasn't a people pleaser or a sheep, he would often be picked on for this. Jeff also struggled with his own self-esteem and was insecure about the way he looked, which sadly was something he would never really overcome, and he always had that sense of insecurity despite the attention that he would often attract from female fans. Jeff was said to have had a quirky sense of humour and liked to joke around despite also having a serious side to him and growing up to be very witty. At the age of eight, Jeff would meet his biological father, Tim Buckley, for the very first time when he attended a gig of his father's and would end up spending the week with him. Despite any previous disappointment or anger he held for his father, Jeff was happy to be spending time with him finally after all these years. When Jeff returned to his mother's, sadly he would never see Tim again, and just months later, on the 29th of June 1975, 
Tim was found dead of a heroin overdose at just the age of 28. Over the years, Tim had released nine studio albums and had an experimental musical career, dabbling in folk, jazz, soul and even funk music in order to keep his career alive, although his addiction to heroin use often got in the way of further success, with Tim Buckley remaining somewhat of a fan and critic favourite rather than a household name, with his success often fluctuating with his biggest fan base hailing from the east coast of the US and his sales commercially sitting on the lower side of things. Before his death, Tim had just concluded a successful short tour of Dallas in the US when he decided to celebrate with friends and his band by holding a weekend party that involved plenty of booze. Then, at some point on the night of the 29th of June, 1975, Tim was presented by a UCLA student named Richard Keeling with a bag of heroin, which Tim decided to snort. Tim was later found passed out and lifeless on the foot of the steps to an apartment, and with Tim being in a terrible state, His friends brought him home to Tim's wife of five years named Judy Sutcliffe before laying him on the living room floor. Judy questioned Tim's friends on what had happened to him. Some suggested foul play, but then they realised it must have been a horrible mix of drugs and alcohol. Judy decided to then move him to the bedroom and laid him down on the bed. She continued to check on him throughout the evening but at one stage, she found him unresponsive. Tim had turned blue, and Judy discovered that he had stopped breathing. Judy then phoned the emergency services, who responded at the scene and attempted to revive him on the way to hospital. But unfortunately, they were unable to revive him, and Tim was pronounced dead on arrival. The coroner's report eventually came back, confirming that he had passed away from, quote, acute heroin, morphine, and ethanol intoxication due to inhalation and ingestion of overdose. After this, the police managed to track down Richard Keeling and arrested him for supplying Tim with the heroin and for murder. Richard claimed at first that he wasn't responsible for Tim overdosing, But in court, during August 1975, he pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter, which resulted in Richard being sent to prison for four months and receiving four years probation after failing to complete community service. Sadly, at the time of his death, Tim was in quite a bit of debt and only owned his guitar and amplifier. A funeral in Santa Monica was held after his death, where 200 friends and family attended, but his 8-year-old son Jeff, who he had just met for the first time months earlier, was not invited or even included on the obituaries, which would have been a cruel blow to the youngster, with Jeff saying that it often gnawed at him that he never got to attend. With this sad news of his biological father passing, Jeff decided that he would now go by his birth name of Jeff Buckley, after years of going by the name Jeff or Scotty Moorhead. 
as Jeff had also discovered his birth certificate reading Jeffrey Scott Buckley. This was Jeff's way of honouring his late father and feeling closer to him, although Jeff was still referred to by his family as Scotty. Sadly, as Jeff got older, his opinion of his father would understandably vary over the years as he contemplated Tim's absence for much of his life and pondered why he left in the first place. Jeff's opinion also changed dramatically when he discovered that after leaving his mother Mary in the year 1970, when Jeff would have been four years old, Tim went on to marry for a second time to Judy Sutcliffe, and Tim had adopted Judy's son, Taylor Sutcliffe, raising Taylor as his own. This undoubtedly would have affected Jeff when he discovered this, as it would have felt like Tim wanted to raise a child that wasn't even his, but couldn't even stay to raise his very own son, or at least be a constant part of his life. Jeff would ask many questions about his father from this point on, wondering how did he die, what caused his career to go on the slide, and how at one stage he was accused of alienating his fans, as Jeff would now be determined to live his life longer, differently, and would attempt not to fall into the same trappings as his father, which in a way would always burden him and be in the back of his mind. When Jeff was 12 years old, he was asked if he would like to join the school orchestra, with Jeff choosing to play the cello. Jeff was able to play the cello loaned out to him, and he would take it home and practice. While Jeff learnt to play cello, he actually longed to play the electric guitar, like some of his idols, and that wish would luckily come true on Christmas Day 1979, when a 13-year-old Jeff opened a large present, which just so happened to turn out to be his very first electric guitar, which was a black Les Paul. Jeff's mother Mary, grandparents and aunt and uncle had all chipped in to buy him the guitar, which according to his mother, became, quote, his pride and joy. Soon enough, Jeff taught himself how to play quite well, covering the likes of the Smiths and Led Zeppelin tracks. As mentioned earlier, Jeff was described as quiet and reserved, but when he started playing guitar, he really came out of his shell, almost like it was an extension of him and his way of expressing himself. For Jeff, music was freeing and a wonderful world of endless possibilities, as he was quoted as saying, Music is endless, and even though I've heard a whole bunch of music from so many different places, and fallen in love countless times with all kinds of music, there's still something, I guess it's just called freedom. Jeff ended up performing in his first band when he was 13 or 14 at a gig at a club, which made him realise this was exactly what he wanted to do. As he told Triple J Radio, quote, That was it, you know. Just, yeah, okay, I like this. It smells bad. I can be here. Everybody's crazy. I don't have to go to school. I have to, but I won't. Jeff at the time was attending Loara High School in Anaheim, California, but as he mentioned, he wasn't too fond of it. 
Jeff happened to take a liking to jazz music in high school and even joined the school jazz band on guitar after listening to jazz fusion guitarist Aldi Miola. It was around this time that he also began listening and attempting to play songs by Yes, Genesis, The Smiths and Rush. At the age of 17 to 18, Jeff graduated from high school and decided he wouldn't opt to go off to college and instead he would just keep playing music and enrol in a year-long institute of music program located in North Hollywood, LA, where he learnt music theory and was trained to play the guitar properly. While living in LA to pay for the fees to support himself and to ensure he could play plenty of gigs, Jeff knew he had to apply for a number of jobs, even though he despised job applications, as he always had to include on his resume his high school and elementary schools that he attended, which for him was embarrassing and almost too many to list, as he had moved around so much as a kid. Jeff worked a number of casual jobs, including as a telemarketer for an answering service company. He also worked as a hotel night clerk and at a clothing store. As Jeff studied, he joined a local four-piece band called Group Therapy after befriending a male drummer who linked up with the band's female lead singer, Catherine Grimm. Catherine thought that Jeff was a very talented guitarist, with Jeff performing at this stage as a guitarist and occasional backing vocalist. Catherine stated that Jeff had a good voice, but that he was still developing the confidence to unleash his brilliant voice that she knew he had deep down. Catherine described him as shy for a while, but slowly he blossomed and came out of his shell as he learnt to sing and to just be himself. Jeff's mother, Mary, claimed he didn't see himself as a singer in the early days and wanted to just play guitar and be recognised as a, quote, guitar god. It was during his time with group therapy that Jeff started writing his own songs and joined several other side projects and bands all at once and was constantly gigging in the LA area playing a range of genres from jazz to heavy rock, metal, progressive rock, folk and even reggae. Jeff toured with a reggae performer called Shinehead and worked studio sessions for small-time R&B and funk bands. In relation to the job and band situation, Jeff was also quoted as saying, As usual, when you start doing exactly what you are, whether you're a writer or a catamaran sailor, you pretty much start in for the most demeaning work you will ever do in your life, and some of the bands were really fun. The band group Therapy would last around three years while Jeff wrapped up his musical institute course after one year at the age of 19. Jeff later told Rolling Stone magazine, quote, It was the biggest waste of time, but then in a different interview with Double Take magazine, Jeff said he enjoyed the music theory side of things, and quote, If you have the interest, go to a private teacher, go someplace, some college, and learn theory. That was something I really enjoyed. Theory meaning the meaning of the musical nomenclature. I was attracted to really interesting harmonies, 
stuff that I would hear in Ravel, Ellington, Bartok. Jeff would perform at his graduation ceremony on the 15th of September 1985, performing the song Pearl on the Half Shell, originally by the band Weather Report, with two of his classmates joining him for the cover of the quirky jazz funk song. After a while, Jeff grew tired of LA and Southern California, after saying that he never felt like he fit in, despite living most of his life here. So at the age of 23, Jeff decided to head to New York City in February 1990, sharing an apartment in Lower Manhattan with female actress Brooke Smith, who featured in the film Silence of the Lambs. It wasn't long into his stay in New York that he especially got right into the music of unique Pakistani vocalist Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, an Indian and Pakistani music known as Kuali, a form of Sufi devotional Islamic singing. Jeff would learn to imitate this type of singing despite not actually understanding what they were saying. It would be perfect for training his voice to throw out all sorts of unique notes and really added to his own unique style. Jeff also started playing the music of blues legend Robert Johnson around this time, and he also got into the music of punk band Bad Brains, as his wide interest in music would greatly help his unique style to develop. Jeff had sold everything he owned to move to New York, barring his musical instruments of course, and at first struggled to find paid work as a musician. Then, during September 1991, when a talent manager named Herb Cohen, who once worked for Jeff's father Tim, got in contact with Jeff and organised a recording session with Jeff for a demo tape as he paid for Jeff to fly back to LA to record alongside producer Michael Klaus. Klaus and Jeff had actually met before back in 1988 when Jeff was brought in as a session musician on guitar for an R&B group to work on a track that the group and Klaus had written. The R&B group had been fond of Jeff's work on guitar and with him being in town around the time, they jumped at the opportunity to have him on the track. Klaus remembers when Jeff arrived, he walked in like he had just emerged from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, like a gunslinger from the 70s, wearing a leather jacket, but that he was also quiet and reserved. Although Klaus said, when Jeff plugged in his guitar... He came alive instantly. The demo tape known as the Babylon Dungeon Sessions were recorded at Klaus's personal studio in Hollywood, LA. Jeff laid down four tracks, including early versions of Eternal Life and Unforgiven, which would later be renamed Last Goodbye. The other tracks included a punk song called Radio, and an early alternative rock version of Strawberry Street, and a hidden track called Bluebird Blues. Klaus says he remembers asking Jeff where he wanted to be in five years, with Jeff stating, quote, I want to make an album that makes people forget about Led Zeppelin 3. Klaus could tell that Jeff had the talent and potential to go far, and Herb Cohen knew he could spruce him to the record labels with his new demo tape. Jeff Buckley had it all. 
He had a sweet but powerful and enchanting voice. He could play guitar better than most older than him. He had an indescribable star aura about him, charming personality, and good looks to go with it, with his curly hair that would attract women from all over to come and see him perform, as he was often referred to as a good-looking Bob Dylan. With Jeff temporarily residing back in LA, on the 26th of April 1991, when Jeff was 24 years old, he was invited to perform at a life-changing event at St. Anne's Church in Brooklyn, New York, at a tribute performance dedicated to his father called Greetings from Tim Buckley. Jeff had actually heard that the concert was going ahead and thought he might like to be a part of it, so he got in contact with the organisers Hal Wilner and Janine Nichols through his manager Herb Cohen. Cohen would tell Wilner and Nichols that Jeff was much better than his father Tim and that they should give him a go. Most fans and even some involved in organising the event hadn't even known up to this point that Tim had his own biological child and weren't even really aware of how good he was, just that he was a local performing musician. The organisers of the event were sceptical, but Jeff's name alone was all they needed to place him on the set list, to draw people in. The organisers would decide to put Jeff on just before the concert's intermission, instead of as an opener, in case things were to go wrong. The audience would turn out to be much larger than the intimate small gigs Jeff had been exposed to in his brief time in New York and LA, and it would be his biggest and most important gig yet. The list of performers would sing a number of Tim's songs each, with not many expecting much from Jeff, as his name would be listed on the program, below others, as Jeff Scott Buckley. Despite the low expectations, when the moment of truth came, Jeff walked onto stage as the crowd chatted amongst themselves as they became restless in their seats just before the halftime intermission. Jeff began the performance with his back to the audience as he then turned around and the spotlight shone straight onto Jeff, illuminating his facial features reminiscent of his father Tim. The crowd instantly froze in shock at their similarities as Jeff opened with a howling note, sending shivers up the audience's spine. The spine-tingling performance was a showstopper as Jeff blew away the crowd and even the organisers with a rendition of his father's song called I Never Asked to Be Your Mountain, which was actually a song about Jeff as a youngster and his mother Mary. As the lyrics relate to the moment that Tim learnt he was going to be a father and the toxic relationship he had with Mary at the time. As the lines read, The flying Pisces sails for time and tells me of my child. Wrapped in bitter tales and heartache, he begs for just a smile. Oh, he never asked to be her mountain. He never asked to fly. And through his eye, he comes his love and tells her not to cry. She says, Your scoundrel father flies, with a dancer called a queen, and with her stolen cards he plays, and laughs but never wins. Oh, the child dreams to be his hands, in the counting of the rain, 
but only barren breasts he feels, for her milk will never drain. The organiser of the event, Hal Wilner, even admitted that Jeff was in fact better vocally than Tim, as his haunting and eerie vocals rang out throughout the church, which of course provided great acoustics to amplify Jeff's voice. Jeff would also perform Sephronia, The King's Chain, and Phantasmagoria in two, and was invited back onto stage for an encore performance to conclude the concert with the song Once I Was, which of course was the song that Jeff first remembers hearing when he was six years old after his mother had played it for him. Jeff also happened to tell this story to the audience and had to perform for the most part in a cappella due to a snap guitar string, which only put on display how great Jeff's voice was anyway. After the show had finished, Jeff was swarmed but overwhelmed by fans of Tim's who came over to give him their praise and took Jeff's business cards to come see him at other shows. Jeff was so emotional after the performance that he cried to himself backstage, overwhelmed with the positive reception that he had received and perhaps the fact that he honoured his father, as he once said to Rolling Stone magazine, quote, It wasn't my work, it wasn't my life, but it bothered me that I hadn't been to his funeral, that I'd never been able to tell him anything. I used that show to pay my last respects. One thing Jeff did struggle to take constructively, however, was the loads of comments he received saying he sung just like his father or that he looks exactly like his father. For Jeff, he didn't want to be seen as an extension of his father as he himself didn't know him well enough and he still held a sense of anger for him not being around. Jeff just wanted to be himself and be known for his own work. But, as much as he wanted to distance himself from his father, in order to pay his respects, he felt he still needed to perform that night. While Jeff wasn't a fan of these comments, there was no doubting the uncanny similarities in regards to their soft-spoken singing voices, despite Jeff's coming to be known as much stronger. While the way in which Jeff moved when he performed, the way they both spoke and sung with so much passion, the way they close their eyes when they sing, their hair and their facial structures were quite similar. As his career progressed, however, Jeff came to terms with these comparisons more so, although his mother Mary said that Jeff had made his own path and it had nothing to do with his father, as she was quoted as saying, That was Jeff. It was all in his soul. However, many claim that Jeff's career took off after this performance, although Jeff himself didn't like to acknowledge this. It was at this tribute concert for his father Tim Buckley that Jeff would meet and begin to date a musician and artist named Rebecca Moore. For Jeff, New York made him extremely happy with a more artistic environment and was perfect for unleashing his best self musically. So with Rebecca, he decided to stay here permanently and move back from LA for the second time. Rebecca Moore grew up amongst the New York art scene and would introduce Jeff to the weird but wonderful world 
of artistic performance, improv and theatre, where Jeff would once again incorporate his improv experience into his live performances as a musician, while also drawing on the quirky and humorous side of his personality. With many who knew Jeff well, they claimed that he had two sides to his personality, being the goofy, funny guy who joked around a lot and that he could be spontaneous, but that there was also another side of him where he was shy, reserved and liked to do his own thing. Jeff would attend these improv evenings with his girlfriend Rebecca and perform quirky segments, creating sounds from flicking random objects such as CDs and blowing with his mouth into shower hoses to make all sorts of strange sounds while also reciting poems. Together the pair even appeared in a play of sorts called The Cure for the Biting of a Mad Dog, which was taken from Old English texts. Jeff and Rebecca's relationship, however, would be quite brief. Jeff once even said that if he didn't have music, that he would take up anything artistic, such as sculpture design or even screenplay. Improv would allow Jeff to come further out of his shell and to produce more unique experimental sounds to incorporate into his music and to utilise vocally. Improv allowed Jeff to be much more efficient with arrangement and pacing within his songs and taught him the importance of live music and connecting with your audience in a more intimate setting. Jeff would sum up the role of art and music in what he does and how he expresses himself by saying, quote, There's artistry in human beings. It's just a human function. I find answers from music all the time, but because mostly identifying with music is a way of expressing myself, I just find most of my answers there. Other people find it through pain or art or teaching or even murder. After the tribute performance for his father, during mid-1991, Jeff even joined a band that was led by his friend Gary Lucas, who he had also met during the tribute show. The band would be called Gods and Monsters, and Jeff would jam with them until late 1991. With Jeff breaking up with Rebecca, he would move to the Lower East Side of Manhattan in New York, after Gods and Monsters picked up a development deal with Omega Records. Jeff even performed one live show with them in March 1992, singing his original song called Mojo Pin, which he wrote during this period, which was also around the time that Jeff had wrote the song Grace. With Gary Lucas, he recorded these tracks at Krypton Studio in New York and placed them onto a demo tape. But after just a couple of minor performances, such as an appearance from the band on local radio, after just one official show with Gods and Monsters, Jeff decided it wasn't for him and quit the band. After their first performance, Gary was stoked to have Jeff on board as Jeff was such a talented singer and was exactly what the band needed. But Jeff called him up the next day and told him that he had to quit. Jeff just wasn't feeling it and knew it wasn't where his future lied. He wanted to have his own band and not just be a member in somebody else's. Jeff of course was now singing 
instead of just playing guitar. And for free, or a small fee, Jeff would play on his own, or occasionally with Gary Lucas, in what Jeff called his cafe days, at small venues like the Knitting Factory, CBGB's, the Roulette Club, Cornelia Street Cafe, First Street Cafe, the Gallery, and what would become his main hangout at a bar and cafe called Chenay, which was Irish for That's It, and was located in the East Village of New York, marking his first official gig here around April or May 1992. Here at Chenay, Jeff would happily offer to wipe up the dishes in the kitchen, in exchange to perform in their small cafe for their customers. Jeff still couldn't afford a decent guitar, so he was playing on a borrowed Fender Telecaster. His performances around this time at Chennai were very emotional, moving and intimate here, being such a tight space with limited room for many people. However, Jeff soon enough had people coming from all over to witness his unique performances and stunning vocals. People would be lined up down the block just to watch him as they all attempted to squeeze into the tiny cafe as passers-by would hear his sweet and haunting vocals from the sidewalk and just had to stop in to see where or who that beautiful voice was actually coming from. During the Chenet days, Jeff had shorter hair and wore singlets and jeans, which was of course different to his later style of messy mid-length hair, checkered shirts and shawls, more in the Kurt Cobain mould. Jeff would perform extra long sets, lasting for hours, as he would sip his beer or wine in between songs and still hit all the notes perfectly. He would cover songs by Nina Simone, Fishbone, John Lee Hooker and The Smiths during this time and occasionally even sung Nusrat Khan and chucked in some originals that he had been working on from his demos. Over time, Jeff built quite a solid local following and his name and reputation started to get out there, especially after the tribute gig to his father Tim. Jeff would eventually start charging $5 entry fees at the door and had no problem selling out his shows. His regular gigs at Chennai would put the cafe on the map, with brilliant covers such as The Boy With The Fawn In His Side by The Smiths, bringing the owner of Chennai, Shane Doyle, plenty of business after years of the small cafe struggling. Chennai would be a great place for Jeff to start out and hone his skills, As the crowd or the patrons were incredibly friendly and supportive, they didn't mind if he made errors or got a bit experimental, as his talent made up for it. This supportive environment enabled Jeff to progress quickly into a highly skillful guitarist and performer, as his voice only got stronger and stronger. However, it was a lot of hard work and dedication that would see opportunities to further his career present themselves. At one stage, a musician known as Tom Clark, who was a regular performer at Chennai on Monday nights, had left briefly to take up a touring opportunity in Ireland for a few weeks, and Jeff, who didn't actually have a particular time slot every week, was slotted in to fill Tom's vacant Monday night slot 
which just so happened to be one of the most popular nights at Chennai. During Tom's absence, Jeff had impressed so much that when Tom returned and requested his Monday nights back, he was rejected by the Chennai owners. This infuriated Tom and he built a strong resentment for Jeff. But after Jeff displayed how skillful he was and how nice and friendly of a person he was, despite Tom's issues with Jeff, Tom backed down and the pair ended up as good friends. As Jeff's reputation grew rapidly, various label executives began to take an interest in all of the fuss Jeff was causing down at Chennai. At one point during mid-1992, Jeff was that much of a hot prospect that limousines were lined down the street with label executives inside waiting to begin negotiations with Jeff and his management. Even Clive Davis of A&R Records offered him a deal, but Steve Berkowitz of Columbia and Sony Records would win the race to sign Jeff Buckley after Jeff attended the main office and saw the pictures and platinum records on the walls of Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan, which was the final push that got Jeff over the line, with Berkowitz proposing that if Jeff wanted to, he could also be as big as them and get his picture on that wall. Jeff would sign the deal in October 1992 with Sony and Columbia Records, worth almost $1 million over three albums. A&R did offer Jeff more money, but Columbia's promise to not get in his way creatively and their understanding for his vision outweighed the financial aspect. Berkowitz of Columbia Records even signed Jeff without even listening to his previously recorded demo tape and only happened to judge him off of his live performances at Chennai, which was quite unheard of in the industry, as demo tapes are almost always the first consideration. The Columbia label itself wasn't as convinced yet, but Berkowitz saw something in Jeff and it was too good to pass up. Columbia Records would question Jeff's age, being already 24 to 25 at the time, and they are also unsure of what to do with him. Despite signing the deal, Jeff continued to perform for his loyal patrons at Chennai, as Jeff headed into the studio with Berkowitz during February 1993 over a three-day period, recording a range of his originals and covers, with some landing on his debut album later on, and some being released after his death on an album called You and I, in 2016. The rest, however, have never been released and were even prevented from being bootlegged. Steve Berkowitz would later describe the sides of Jeff's personality that he noticed during these sessions, as he said, He was in some ways just like the records. Deep, moody, mysterious. Where does all that come from? How does one person have that much ability and emotion and understanding. And then on the flip side, he was hysterically funny, like a Jim Carrey, Robin Williams manic comedian who could impersonate anyone. It was during mid-1993 that Jeff would be on the hunt for a band that could accompany him on the recording of his debut album and during his live shows. 
Jeff dreamed of having his own band back him instead of being solo on stage. And sure enough, Jeff found himself the perfect bass player with Danish-American Mick or Mickey Grondahl, who instantly clicked with Jeff. Mickey was about a year and a half younger than Jeff and was born on the 7th of May, 1968, in Copenhagen, Denmark, before moving to Manhattan in the US as a child, alongside his grandmother and mother. After graduating college with a bachelor's degree in art history and English, Mickey found himself playing in several bands before spotting Jeff one night playing at the Columbia University's Postscript Cafe and the rest was history. Jeff and Mickey played together a couple of times as a duo as Jeff began the search for around a month for a new drummer. The process was a frustrating one before they finally found the perfect man for the job in Matt Johnson during August 1993. When joining the band, Matt Johnson was almost four years younger than Jeff and was born on the 6th of November 1970 in Houston, Texas in the US. When Matt Johnson auditioned for the band, the trio jammed together and the chemistry was instant. After a few hours of jamming, they even came up with the basic structure for the song Dream Brothers, which would land on Jeff's debut album. Matt would be instantly hired straight away after the jam sesh. With Jeff's new look band forming during September 1993, an almost 27-year-old Jeff Buckley would attend Bearsville Studios in Woodstock, New York for six weeks to record his debut album with a producer of his own choosing named Andy Wallace, known for his contribution to Nirvana's Nevermind album and his work with Ozzy Osbourne and Run DMC. Also joining them on their sessions were German composer and musician Karl Berger, who was utilised on the string arrangements. Jeff loved the recording setting at Bearsville Studios, as it was quite secluded. It was surrounded by green shrubbery and was located nearby to forest land, which allowed for Jeff to clear his mind by taking nature walks, and was the perfect setting to inspire his creativity without the usual distractions and hustle and bustle of the city life. When going into the studio for the very first time, Jeff summed it up by saying, quote, It's just immediate charisma. It's like walking into the only church that matters. Like you feel all kinds of spirits there. Drummer Matt Johnson was surprised and overwhelmed with how quickly he became part of the recording for the album after only joining less than a month earlier. During the recording sessions, the trio quickly became best mates and Matt and Mickey claimed they never felt left out artistically or like it was all Jeff's album as they chimed in with their ideas now and then and enjoyed each other's company. Despite this... Matt and Mickey did describe Jeff as occasionally frustrating to work with due to Jeff's perfectionist attitude towards his music. While this was also admirable, often Jeff would rewrite lyrics or melodies despite the others believing they were great as they were. Jeff's mind was always in overdrive 
thinking up new poetic lines, adding in new instrumentals and song structures all in his head, and he just had to add them in. Despite these issues making it difficult to record with Jeff, this is also what made him so great and so special as a true musician. As Jeff was quoted as saying, Songs just come out of poems, and sometimes poems come out of dreams, or reality, or something that I want to say, and sometimes it's like magic. Jeff also kept a journal with him at all times that he could draw inspiration from, as he would write down random lyrics or notes, sketches, and experiences in day-to-day life. During the recording sessions, Jeff took it upon himself to immerse himself in the process when it came to producing the tracks for the album. Jeff was his own biggest critic and would sit there repeatedly listening to himself on vocals and on guitar. If he didn't like what he heard, he would delete the recording altogether and re-record it over and over until he felt that it was perfect. This was despite the producer feeling it was perfect for the first time anyway. Jeff was determined to be himself and wanted to display his own influence, who he was as a person, and his own unique approach to music on the record. Despite Columbia Records' insistence to intervene on how the record should sound or what his image should be, Jeff fought hard not to become a product of the label and wasn't in the mood to be told what to do. While Jeff could have been a lot bigger and more successful in his career had he stuck to the label's instructions, Jeff was always going to make that record that he'd been waiting his whole life to create, and no amount of money or fame, by changing who he was as a person or artist, could entice him. Towards the end of the recording sessions, the label and even Jeff agreed that the album was just lacking one more quality track to complete it. That's when Jeff brought in his musician friend and fellow talented guitarist named Michael Tyre to help construct a track that became Jeff Buckley's favourite of his career known as So Real, which actually pushed another great track titled Forget Her off of the album. Michael Tyre would become the fourth member of the band at the end of the recording sessions after passing an audition, as they were seeking a second guitarist to accompany and compliment Jeff. Ty had been born and raised in New York, and was also part of the downtown New York theatre scene during his teenage years, which is where he met Jeff Buckley, and the pair became good friends around two years before they collaborated, as the pair would hang out, attend each other's gigs, and listen to music together. Michael would be still in high school when he first met Jeff, as Tyra called to Music Radar, quote, Jeff's girlfriend when he moved to New York was a close friend of mine. Her name was Rebecca Moore. When he moved to New York from Los Angeles, he moved in with her in the East Village, and that's when we became fast friends. He didn't really know that many people in New York, so Rebecca introduced us, and then I just started going over there when I would get off of high school, because I was still in high school at the time. I'd just show him around the city, around the East Village, and we'd go and play pool, and we'd get into bars if we could get in, and listen to music at his house. 
and he'd come over to my place and play guitar with me. We bonded over rural blues music like Sun House and Robert Johnson. He was almost basically busking in New York City for his dinner. There was this one night when he was playing at Shanae and he did Hallelujah. And at that moment, it really hit me that, you know, he was going to make history. Despite being excited to have recorded his first album, Jeff was also struggling with the fact that he was about to send such a personal part of him out to the world. As Jeff brilliantly and wisely summed up this feeling, as he was quoted as saying, It's not like a live show, where you play it and it just disappears into the air like smoke. It's like painting, a sound painting. It's in a crystallised form, so it's very nerve-wracking. Like which brain cell do I put down here, forever and ever? You don't know. And half of the art of making records is letting the whole thing go. Even the mistakes. On the 23rd of November, 1993, a live EP titled Live at Shanae was released, including the tracks Mojo Pin, Eternal Life, a French cover song, and a cover of Van Morrison's The Way Young Lovers Do, which all really reflect just how wide a variety of music influenced Jeff at this time. Jeff had recorded the EP during July and August earlier that year, and only accompanied himself on guitar for this live album, using the borrowed Fender Telecaster. Both Berkowitz and Jeff Buckley produced the album together, with Jeff keen to involve himself in his own album's formation, showing he wasn't just going to let the label dictate his every move. The album was a small success and brought in more interest for Jeff, but he was still generally unknown outside the Café Chenet and the downtown New York City music circuit at this stage. On the 12th of January 1994, Jeff Buckley toured his Live at Chenet album as a solo artist for the very first time around North America, beginning with a performance in the Wetlands Preserve in New York alongside the band Counting Crows. This was followed by a trip to Vancouver in Canada before more shows across the US and for the first time, Jeff headed to the UK and the Netherlands, performing in bars and clubs. It's believed during Jeff's trip to the UK in early 1994 that he met and shared a brief but intense and passionate relationship with Scottish singer-songwriter Elizabeth or Liz Fraser of the band The Cocteau Twins, known for playing gothic rock and post-punk dream pop music and releasing eight studio albums from 1982 to 1996. Their relationship was so brief that sadly not one photograph even exists out there of the pair together. Elizabeth Fraser was born on the 29th of August 1963 in Grangemouth, Scotland, which made her around three years older than Jeff. With Jeff being 27 years old at the time and Liz being 30 years old. Liz described her upbringing in the town of Grangemouth as dark and stifling, as her mother worked in a factory being known as an industrial town with not much else going for it. Unlike Jeff, who was an only child, Liz had five other siblings to compete with and life was quite bleak 
as she was sadly sexually abused by her brother-in-law and her father when she was growing up. All of these factors were believed to have contributed to Liz developing an eating disorder and bulimia and turning to a more goth or punk style of appearance, listening to punk music and dressing outrageously compared to the rest of her family, which happened to get her kicked out of her home by her parents at age 16, as she refused to change her newfound style. This led Liz down a destructive path as she rebelled, receiving her first tattoo at just the age of 16, and using music as her escape from her troubled young life, much like Jeff had. At age 17, Liz met Robin Goofrey while she was dancing for money at a club, with Liz saying, quote, What brought us together was me having no ideas and opinions of my own, and him having plenty, enough for both of us. We were attracted to each other for the wrong reasons. Robin Goofrey would prove to be a negative influence on Liz, and the pair would soon join Will Heggie to form the Cocteau Twins. Of course, then things fell apart over time, and due to her contract with her record label, she had no choice but to see it out in the same band as her troubled ex, Robin Goofrey which made it very difficult to continue on. However, this led her to meeting Jeff, who potentially saved her from returning to Goofy romantically and their toxic and troubled relationship, with Jeff showing her a different side of life and that she deserved better. Together, Liz and Jeff instantly had a connection, with many describing their bond as magnetic, as they bonded over their past experiences troubled childhoods and they helped each other through their relationship troubles and they bonded over their similar taste in music, with the pair both being talented musicians in their own right. Liz was having a tough time in her band at the time and was struggling after having troubles with her ex-husband and fellow Cocteau twins bandmate Robin Goofrey. When Jeff and Liz got together, Goofrey and Liz had been on a brief break in their relationship due to Goofrey's drug and alcohol abuse resulting in a trip to rehab, while Liz was struggling with her own mental health, deciding to receive psychotherapy treatment. But Liz described meeting Jeff as like a breath of fresh air, and that he really sparked something inside of her, reclaiming her happiness and excitement for life again. As Liz was quoted as saying, I was having a hard time in the band I was in, so to meet Jeffrey was like, I had all this colour in my life again. Jeff had actually been a huge fan of Liz's work since she featured on a cover version of one of Jeff's father's songs called Song to the Siren in 1983, when she performed in the project band This Mortal Coil, including members of the Cocteau Twins. Jeff was blown away with Liz's voice, and as time went on, Liz actually became a fan of Jeff's music in the early 90s. Usually shy and quiet, especially when interviewed, Liz spoke in a BBC documentary about Jeff, where she was quoted as saying, I mean, he idolised me before he met me, it's kind of creepy, and I, I was like that with him. This is embarrassing, but it's the truth. I just couldn't help falling in love with him. He was adorable. 
I read his diaries, he read mine. You know, we'd just swap. We'd literally just hand over this very personal stuff. And I've never done that with anybody else. I don't know if he has. So in some ways, there was a great deal of intimacy. But then there'd be just times when I'd just think, Oh no, I'm just not penetrating this Jeff Buckley boy at all. Jeff was well known for keeping a very personal diary or journal that he would jot down all sorts of things in, from lyrics to his most deepest thoughts, so this was no small deal for him either, showing just how much love and trust that the pair shared for one another. Like Liz said, however, Jeff was hard to penetrate, meaning he at times struggled to open up completely and fully let Liz in, in person. This would sadly contribute to their breakup in the end, as Liz also claimed that at times she felt more like a groupie than a partner, and that the intimacy was good at times, but also rocky. This was often described as the case with Jeff, as he struggled to interact with others off the stage, but on the stage, he opened up and could do and say anything. It was like his therapy, and all anxiety would fly out the window. Fans of both Liz and Jeff claim that Jeff was the centrepiece for the Cocteau Twins EP titled Twin Lights in 1995, as Liz appeared to hint at this connection during an interview with Alternative Press when she claimed that she went on tour in support of the band's album Four Calendar Cafe in 1994 and fell madly in love with a mysterious and unnamed man as she was quoted as saying, My love addiction was worse than ever. I was manical. The EP is about that man. My last goodbye, as it were. I was too needy, and he was too much of an avoidance person, naturally. This description of the mysterious man, an avoidant person, and perhaps the mention of a last goodbye, and the timing of events suggests that this is in fact referring to Jeff. Just before the pair parted ways, however, Liz and Jeff would record an incomplete duet together titled All Flowers in Time Bend Towards the Sun, which would to this day never be released officially. The song, however, was unofficially leaked onto the internet, which appeared to anger Liz when she was asked by The Guardian in 2005 as she was quoted as saying, Why do people have to hear everything? It's unfinished, you see. I don't want it to be heard. The emotional track, while beautiful, would have no doubt been special to Liz, and it would have been frustrating to see it be leaked out without her consent. If it had have been complete and released, however, there's no doubt it would have done very well. When Liz and Jeff's relationship came to an abrupt end, Liz went on to have a second daughter with a drummer named Damon Reese of the band Lupine Howe, after she previously shared a daughter with Robin Goofrey. The Cocteau Twins disbanded in 1997, mainly due to Liz and Goofrey being unable to work cohesively. Liz would go on to feature her hauntingly beautiful and dreamlike vocals on the hit song Teardrop by Massive Attack, and worked with the likes of Peter Gabriel, with Liz now being 58 years old. Jeff would also move on from this relationship, 
and met a woman named Joanne Wasser. Many were sad to see Liz and Jeff's relationship come to an end, and despite Jeff's problems with commitment, he appeared to have no trouble with Joanne, as he stayed with her right up until his death in 1997, and was believed to have even proposed to Joanne right before his death, just a couple of days beforehand. Joanne Wasser was also a musician who played in a band called Those Bastard Souls. Jeff and Joanne had met through their mutual friendship with David Grouse, who was a member of the band The Grifters, and who also happened to be who created the band Those Bastard Souls. Joanne Wasser also shared a similar experience to Jeff growing up and had a tough upbringing. Joanne was born on the 26th of July, 1970, in Biddeford, Maine, in York County, in the US, and was around four years younger than Jeff. Joanne's mother was only a teenager when she had fallen pregnant with Joanne, and was left to raise her on her own. Sadly, however, Joanne was given up for adoption as an infant, with her biological mother struggling to care for her. Luckily for Joanne, she would be adopted by a supportive family that would allow her to achieve much in her young life. She would be raised in Norwalk, Connecticut, alongside her adoptive brother, Dan, who became known for being a visual artist. Her adoptive parents allowed her to express herself musically, imaginatively, and artistically, as she would always dress up and developed an extroverted personality which of course would be the complete opposite to Jeff most of the time. Joanne would learn to play piano and classical music, and later the violin, which was an instrument that she would stick with throughout her life. Joanne would eventually utilise these skills, playing in school and local orchestras on violin, before leaving for Boston University at age 18 to pursue a classical musical career. Despite knowing what she was getting into, Joanne soon grew tired of classical music and was quoted as saying, I didn't want to make classical music my life. The Beethoven symphonies have already been played a million times and I am not going to do it any better. And just like that, Joanne turned her focus from one extreme to the next as she joined a number of local punk bands and incorporated her violin into the bands by saying that she wanted to, quote, bridge the gap between the guitar and the bass and play the violin really loud. This would lead Joanne to feature on violin for Electra Records signed indie rock band The Dam Builders, where she featured on three albums. Sporting Dreadlocks, Bright Clothing, her unique style on violin, accompanying a rock band, and her eccentric personality, Joanne was hard not to notice, which is what caught the eye of Jeff Buckley. Joanne expanded her role within the band, playing keyboard and singing occasionally, and eventually joined the band Those Bastard Souls, where Joanne and Jeff hit it off through their mutual friend, David Grouse. Eventually, Joanne would move to New York to be closer to Jeff and try her hand on their music scene. During June through to August 1994, 
Jeff returned to the US, performing more and more shows as his name started to get out there. Jeff would call this tour the Peyote Radio Theatre Tour, with credible attendees including Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, and The Edge from U2. Often witty and intriguing in his interviews, during 1994, in an interview with Much Music, Jeff Buckley revealed that he is actually a very spiritual type of person, and he has a very interesting outlook on life, who we are as people, and what it means to create art. As Jeff was quoted as saying, I think people are divine and eternal. I think that people live on many, many different levels. You know, you see things, understand things in a certain way. Yes, we're totally mortal, and I don't even know what that is. This flesh thing on this earth thing, you know, in finding out at the time. Everybody knows what it's like to create an artistic moment. It's just heightened humanism and human language. If you've spent a night making love, you know exactly what it means to strip your ego down where you are there expressing yourself wordlessly, collaborating on a moment that has an energy about it that is replenishing or inspirational in ways that you could never imagine, and that's the way art really is. I sometimes think it's just a dream that your soul has in order to reach out to people, to kiss or dance or something. The more you learn about the nature of things, the more you attune to it. I believe in people, in their divinity, in the divinity of nature totally, and the order of things, and the many systems that make up chaos and all that stuff. And I love it, and I've been messed up by it. It's just life but I observe and gather the nectar from all religions, but I really don't wholly trust in man's organisation of God. Thank you for tuning into that episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes, ranging from Kurt Cobain and Freddie Mercury to Prince, Chasey Chapman and Stevie Nicks, and up-and-comers like Youngblood, Tones and I, and The Kid Leroy. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast, or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and even YouTube and Spotify, where you can find a range of playlists featuring the music of every artist covered in the Lyrics of Their Life podcast so far. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, or you can now rate the podcast on Spotify. Don't forget to let your friends and family know about what they've been missing out on, and feel free to click the free subscribe or follow button to the podcast, wherever you listen, so you can receive a notification every time a new episode becomes available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then please feel free to head to Patreon or buymeacoffee.com, where you can contribute your support for the podcast in exchange for some bonus content, ranging from as little as $1 donations to really anything you like. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue to bring you more great episodes in the future. This podcast is created and researched completely independently, so your contribution would really help this podcast continue on. 
Once again, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.